Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, dogs and cats, pets and plants, welcome to the companions Ed Kramer, Secrets of CGI. I'm your host, Lawrence Cow, and the focus of the companion is to tell the most authentic insider stories that fans want to know. What does it mean to be a fan? Why are these stories so important? Well, together, we could celebrate these stories and the people behind those stories that shaped our lives. And today, we have a special one. I didn't know his name. You might not know his name. I didn't know what he looked like. And yet, I've seen all of his movies as a teenager and a young adult. He was a senior technical director, a sequence supervisor, an illustrious alumni of George Lucas's company, Industrial Light and Magic. Many of you will be like me and waited for the midnight showing of Star Wars, The Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, and Revenge of the Sith. Well, we were all waiting in line to see actually some of this man's brilliant work. Maybe you are like me and you worked at the cinema while in high school as an usher and you remember packed houses as people lined up to watch Brandon Fraser and Rachel Weisz face off against Imhotep in The Mummy. Well, you were actually watching this person's work as well. Or you fell in love with Jack O'Neill. That's O'Neill with one L and Daniel Jackson as you took your first trip through the Stargate to Abydos. Yeah, that was him too. He has worked with George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, and Michael Bay, amongst many others. He is a pioneer in VFX. He is an artiste with a mouse. He is a wizard of Hollywood. He is Ed Kramer. Woo! Hi, guys. Hi, hi, Lawrence. Well, thank you so much for uh, for having me here, and uh, I'm really excited to talk to you and to all the companion fans out there. Well, so Ed and I probably met a year ago, over a year ago. We've been talking about, you know, his career, your career, the whole time. Uh, we've had multiple different episodes and interviews, kind of recorded in the bank for your new uh, podcast with us, CGI Fridays. Uh, you've also written an article with us uh, to kind of introduce yourself, but I just want to make sure we can, you know, cover all of that as well. And so, you know, maybe one of what we'll do today is we'll we'll talk a little bit about your career early on, um, you know, and then we'll get into some amazing objects because um, I can see behind uh, behind you there's like a treasure trove of of items, and then not only that, there's actually a closet behind Ed. I think over his left shoulder. Uh, is even more. It's just like a giant closet. So instead of clothes, he just has cool, geeky stuff. And so in the future, we're gonna keep going into that in that treasure trove. Is that right? Is that right, Ed? A absolutely. There's bins in that closet. There, there's actual clothes in that closet too. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, there's there's bins and bins of uh, t-shirts from ILM Productions from uh, the twelve years that I was there. Um, I was there from 94 to 2006, so, or as I like to say, from Jumanji through Pirates 2, because yeah, yeah. In, in, in this business, we don't think in terms of years, 
we measure events by what movie we were working on at the time. Oh you know, yeah, my, yeah, absolutely. So my daughter you know, Ed, was a mummy baby, and uh, and and my son was a, a Pirates Two kid. So yeah, we we keep <laughs> track of time by what film we were working on when they were born. So Ed, it, you know, um, VFX CGI, it could feel like a little bit of a dark art, right? I mean, sometimes people think, you know, you have to be really good at math. Do you need a supercomputer? Obviously, things have really changed. Um, you know, these days you have tools that you can, you know, almost get for free. I guess some schools would even provide it just to start getting you into it, like Adobe Rush, as an example. Um, but at the same time, it still feels really technical. And so I guess when you first started, maybe you can speak about that, you know, where you're a teenager, a young adult. How do you actually first start to even get interested? Is it from a like an interest in art perspective? Is it interest from mathematics perspective? How does that well, kind of come about for you? I think you're going to find when you talk to CGI artists, and that's what my entire mission is, is to talk to these CGI artists, that everyone has a different mix of artsy and techie. Um, in my case, I was always really good at science and math, even from early years. And But I was also the anomaly because I like to draw. And so I, I was that kid that that was the science and math nerd in school but i also was the school cartoonist you know for the newspaper and all that kind of stuff yearbooks and stuff um and then i got a degree at duke university which is a pretty tough school here in the states um uh, and i got that degree in psychology but i got it from a i got a bachelor of science in psychology so i was interested in the visual system and the brain and, and how, how the eye and the brain actually interpreted the world and, and made it real. Um, and then I decided I did not want to be a, a psychologist. I had people saying you should be a clinical psychologist or something. And uh, I decided that I wanted to, because I was always in college really into film, filmmaking. Yeah. And, um, and so then I went to graduate school and got my degree in film production at uh, the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, and, um, and in the course of doing that, I decided to study animation because it was a way to, to draw and to make movies at the same time. But I learned all the other skills of film, you know, editing, directing, uh, producing, budgeting, scripting, all, all that kind of stuff. That was all part of the um, experience. Um, but I happened to discover while I was at film school that the physics department had a computer. And, when, and, and at that time in 1978, 79, computer meant a big wall size, you know, <laughs> you know, behemoth um, that was programmed with punch cards. And so for my master's thesis, when I was getting my master's degree, I decided to use the physics department computer to do some animated sequences for, for my work in the film department and, and also had to use the animation stand in the art department. So, so I was creating this multi-pronged um, uh, degree that involved physics and math and also filmmaking and also animation. And I just loved using the computer. It was so cool. 
at the time I, I had to draw all my objects on graph paper and I had to, I had to draw a front view and a side view and a top view and actually count the number of squares and, and come up with a, a, an X coordinate, a Y coordinate and then a Z coordinate for every, every, you know, corner, every vertex of my object. And, um, you know, it's, it's a little different now. And, and then I had to input them on punch cards. Yeah. So every vertex had one punch card and there was a whole list of punch cards to, to decide the, the, the vertices of the object and another list of punch cards to decide how they were connected by line. Segments. Yeah, 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 for sure. And more, more punch cards to say, okay, start at this point and move the camera over to this point. So, um, I just fell in love with computer animation, wrote my master's thesis on doing computer animation, graduated in 1980. And, um, and the first thing that I decided to do was see if there was any, anybody in the world that was doing this like for real, the, yeah. the computer graphic stuff. And, um, it turned out that there were four companies in Los Angeles at the time. I found a copy of Computer Pictures Magazine. Um, shout out to Dean Eaker. I know you're on the line, Dean. Uh, he was the editor of, uh, of that magazine. Um, so in a way, Dean's responsible for my entire career. I, I went through the magazine. I found these companies and uh, got in touch with one of them. They wanted to hire me, but I was still, I, I came back from film school. I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. So I was back in Atlanta, Georgia and, um, and writing to these places. There was no such thing as sending emails. Well, you know what, Ed, let me, let me, um, let me ask actually one quick question. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you a quick question because, um, you know, back then, obviously you, I guess the way that most computer or technical people you'd have to have you had to be at the right university at the right time, right? You, you would have had to have a physics department, first of all, that had these kind of big computers. And uh, because I know you teach today um, as well, the, the path I'm assuming for anyone interested today is very different, right? I mean, could you almost at least explain like what your, you know, PC or MacBook Pro and its computing power, you know, what it can do versus, you know, your punch card, uh, you know, you know, system, um, just like really briefly, I guess. So. You know, you know, this, have to be different, right? right here, this has way more power than anything ever in, in that period of time. I mean, it's, it's almost, you know, absurd to talk about the difference between the power of computers in the late 70s and what we've got today in 2022, right? I mean, I, you know, 50 years have gone by and, uh, and you know, it's crazy. And the same is true with the software that we use. Because when I started, when I got my first job in CGI, I was working on, um, here, I'll show my first item here. This, this is the, a, a cardboard cutout model of a computer called the Scanimate. And I started working on this. It was invented in the late 1960s at, by a guy named Lee Harrison here in Denver, Colorado, where I'm talking to you from right now. And, um, and this was an analog device where you turn knobs and plugged in wires and flipped switches. There was no keyboard. There was no digital anything to it. It yeah. was all analog and stuff. Um, and so when you compare that to what I can do now 
using Maya or Unreal or, you know, the substance suite of tools and ZBrush and, you know, any, anybody who's out there who knows, you know, what I'm talking about when I, when I say all those things, you know, you know, the difference between what was going on when I got into the industry and what people who are graduating now with degrees in, you know, 3D animation or, or game art, um, you know, the, the, the tool set it, back then, if we were to think about what's actually real right now, that would have been way science fiction. Yeah, I yeah, mean, of course. Yeah. In, in, in the 1980s, no one would have predicted that by 95, we would have an entire movie made totally in CGI. Yeah, but we did. Toy so um, I'm seeing some, I'm, I'm sure, companion members um, talking in fun jest, but, um, you know, they're very intimidated now by you, right? Like you have uh -huh. both a te technical, mathematical, you know, background, and then also this kind of like skill for art and drawing. And I just basically want to make other people feel, you know, a little bit more comfortable, I guess, like if they want to get into it. Well, um, here, these here's tools the exist, I mean, right? Yeah. Most people now, most most people getting into the industry now have taken classes in programming. You know, I had never taken a class in programming at the time. I, I learned programming when I was talking to the guys in the physics department on that, you know, big VAX computer. Um, but people who are graduating now, they have been able to download free versions of things like Blender and, and, and learn CGI on their own or go to a school and get a, a teacher. You know, the best thing about going to school is when you get stuck and you're learning it on your own, what do you do? You go out to the internet and hope somebody has, you know, can answer your question. But when you're at school, you have a teacher there to kind of guide you and to tell you what's important and, and to tell you, oh, don't worry about that because in software today, you don't need to worry about that anymore, things like that. So having a teacher to guide you is really uh, critical. But most people getting into the industry today are tech savvy because everybody's grown up with computers now. So I, I don't think there's any need to be intimidated. I mean, the people that get hired right away are, are of course, people who have been doing it for the longest. So, you know, with anything in your career, if you want to do something, just keep working at it and learning more and more and more. And eventually you get to that point where you're employable in that. So yeah, don't so, be intimidated by me. <laughs> so Ed, you, you mentioned, you know, back in the day when it was the, let's call it Wild West or the early days, you can just flip through a magazine and start mailing or phone, you know, calling these offices and I, I can't imagine you could just email jobs at you know pixar.com or randomly or flipping through a magazine right that that process uh, feels a little bit different and i guess um yeah why don't maybe you tell a little bit about your story about just how you got in your first job but then actually you know how that would differ today a little bit because it, it really is an industry now right where it was it wasn't back then well, what I teach now at the Rocky Mountain College of Art and Design here in Denver is the portfolio sequence. So I help my students put together their demo reels, create their websites, put together their resumes, create their branding, um, you know, what is their look, create their business cards. So, so I'm still very much in touch with the process of getting kids 
through school and out into the real world. And, and it's awesome. Um, you know, I, I have students who are now, you know, making feature films for Marvel. And uh, I had a student who was a finalist in the uh, Student Academy Awards a few years ago. Um, so, you know, that that's it, it's really um, um, it fills my heart to work with students awesome. and to, to launch their careers. Uh, and, you know, a lot of it is persistence. Just keep at it just keep knocking on the doors and that hasn't changed you know but back when i was doing this yeah you needed a, a, a snail mail address you needed to make a copy and this was even before vhs so i had three quarter inch tapes the, the big ones um that i had to physically mail and i had to wait until they arrived um, before I could talk to someone, you know, nowadays you, you just email somebody your URL and they click on it and they're watching your work in like three seconds, you know. And, and so I tell all my students now, you guys are living in the absolute best time in history to be getting into this job market. Um, yeah. and, and also because another thing has happened that's just huge. I couldn't have done any of this stuff from home at the time that I was getting into this work in the early 1980s. It required huge, massive investments in computer tech. You know, now what I can do on my laptop here, I tried to pick it up, but it made my screen shake. Um, <laughs> but what I can do here on my laptop, you know, just just in Maya in, in a day or two is just insane. And, and whereas in my early years, we really had to have access yeah. to that equipment. So no, I think uh, that's so cool. Yeah, that the, this democracy of technology, of software, and all of that. Um, so if we maybe we quickly kind of speed up a little bit um, into something a little bit more relevant, I guess. Uh, Ob one, uh, the series, you know, literally came out this week, and. And um, we'll actually be pulling out some, you know, different clips and stories and stuff um, uh, in a second. But I guess, really, you know, uh, when you were, you know, when you were doing and working uh, on the prequels, um, maybe that kind of felt like it was it. And yet, you know, yesterday, you were seeing your work back on Disney Plus. And can you describe to me the feeling of seeing it re reborn and refreshed and well, you know, I mean, obviously, anytime you see your work on TV or in a movie theater, oh my God, it's like this unbelievable experience. You know, I, I, the the first time it really happened to me was on the movie Jumanji. And I remember, you know, going to the theater and sitting in the theater with other people who are all watching the screen and when, you know, my CGI monkeys in the kitchen came on, it was like, oh, my God, you know, all these people are reacting to my work. They didn't know. I, you know, I was sitting right there amongst them. Um, and I and and I always used to, you know, enjoy that experience, having a movie in the theater and, and being able to sit there amongst the people. Uh, but, you know, yesterday, what I watched was the intro. You know, they they, they summed up the entire uh prequels you know in in two minutes or so um and uh it was cool that there were some of my shots in that uh in that intro there were some shots from uh, 
episode two, Attack of the Clones, I got to supervise uh, the droid factory sequence. So all the, the uh, Anakin fighting off the Geonosians uh, and with Padme on the uh, conveyor belts, you know, all of those, all of the shots in there were shots that I got to uh, supervise. And then um, at the end, I was just really, really lucky in my career to have been given the shots of the, yeah, there, there you go. Um, oh, and I, let, let me just make a comment about these shots while you're watching it, because I got a little grief, believe it or not. I got a little grief about the work on the sequence because Padme is so clean. Look at that. I mean, she's just beautiful, pristine white. And that's how they shot the plates. You know what, what I got, the, the plates that I got were Padme in this beautiful white outfit doing all this stuff. You know, if, if George had wanted her dirty, he would have shot her dirty. Yeah, I, yeah. I can only assume. So, um, you know, what are we going to do? Track oil stains to every piece of cloth that's flopping around on her? So, um, but this was a really, really fun sequence to, uh, to work on. And this shot in particular was the very first um, test shot that we did uh, to show kind of how the conveyor belt would work and how much sparks and all that kind of stuff uh, and how the shadowing would work on in, in this fight. Um, and then so, all the shots where uh, Padme is in this container, uh, you'll, you'll notice there, there are some times where the scale doesn't quite match the, the, the previous shots and stuff. And, um, you know, we, we tried as hard as we could to match everything, but you know, you're, you're, uh, you're always limited by what the elements are that you have that were shot for you. Um, but, uh, you know, it was a really, really cool shot. Uh, yeah. Secret shot well, and you, you just said something really interesting, which is, um, if George had wanted, you know, her dirty, uh, she probably would have come in dirty. And I'm curious, actually, you know, how do you, uh, work with someone like George Lucas? How is that process? And, you um, you know, working at ILM and do you get a brief? Is it like a kickoff meeting? Is it creative brainstorms? Do you actually have to take a, a leap of faith uh, on kind of predicting what he wants and then just kind of go with it and, and hope it's the right thing to do? No, there's there's no leaps of faith in, uh, in the movie business. You have meetings upon meetings, you have pre-production, you have storyboards, um, you have a visual effects supervisor and most movies have a visual effects supervisor, but Star Wars movies were at the time and probably still today, you know, I'm not at ILM. I, I haven't been there since 2006, obviously. Um, so there's all kinds of new things and new ways things are done. But at, at the time, we had three visual effects supervisors for each movie. Uh, and you were on the, the Squires unit or you were on the Murin unit or you were on the Knoll unit or the Snow unit, you know, those visual effects supervisors uh um and and i must say working at ilm the best thing about doing all this was getting to work with all those amazing visual effects supervisors i mean shout out to everybody i just mentioned and the you know 10 or 15 more bill george john burton stephen fangmeyer you know the list goes on and on of uh, of great visual effects supervisors that i got to learn the craft from of how to observe the screen. Um, but, uh, 
you know, there's nothing that's an accident. Now, we didn't meet with George. The way it worked was our visual effects supervisors, the three visual effects supervisors at 7 a.m. or 8 a.m. in the morning would meet with George. And George would look through all the shots and give his critiques to every shot, you know, make this thing faster. This isn't green enough. This lightsaber should be a different color. What, Whatever George's comments were. Um, and they would tell the visual effects supervisors those comments for each of the shots. And then later that morning, we would have our own dailies, the, the Squires unit or the Murin unit or the Null unit or the Snow unit. And we would, we would, uh, we would all sit in a room and they would tell us what George said about your shot. And then you would watch the next person's shot and they would tell you what George said about that shot. So we didn't get his feedback directly, but we got it very soon after he gave it, you know, he gave it at maybe seven or eight in the morning and we would get it at eight or nine in the morning. Um, and so we would be able to respond to whatever George wanted changed. And by the next day, yeah, George would see the next iteration of the shots. There's, there's very, very little happens without a number of people's eyes on the screen watching something over and over and over and over again looking at every part of the screen seeing something that nobody else has noticed but oh my god they noticed it and now everybody's looking at that spot and now everybody sees it you yeah, know, so yeah that's how it worked oh that's awesome all right ed we're gonna go into uh your collections now a little unboxing video let's call it that um you know we thought it'd be really fun to you know talk about your career um, by putting together, you know, like a little twist to the classic unboxing video format. Um, so Ed, you're going to show us five items that each have, you know, special meaning in your career, right? Um, and so let's pull out the first object. Okay. Please. Well, you know, we're going to, we're going to talk about five items and I can't limit it to five items. <laughs> I've got so much stuff here. So, so we'll talk about these, the five items that I selected. I selected one from kind of each of the major highlights of, of my career, but then I've got a ton of other stuff to share. So yeah, let's do number it. One is this pyramid right here. And, you know, it may look like it's uh, it's something from Stargate, but this was actually from the Luxor project and, and Luxor is a hotel in Las Vegas. And uh, in 1993, they commissioned the, the god of visual effects. If, if your viewers have not heard of Douglas Trumbull, uh, you should look at the tribute that I wrote to Doug because he passed away in February and, and I did a, a little article about it. But it was one of the highlights of my entire career to be able to work with the man who did the visual effects for 2001 A Space Odyssey and for Blade Runner uh, and for the, the first Star Trek movie and for Brainstorm and all these amazing visual effects movies. Um, and, and so I got to actually become friends with, uh, with Doug. And so that's a little piece of memorabilia from the visual effects work we did uh, when the hotel opened. They had these three theater attractions and Doug was always interested in pushing the boundaries of what you could do. He didn't want people just sitting in a seat and watching a movie. He wanted there to be some kind of interaction. So each one of these attractions was more than just a, 
viewing something on the screen. And you, uh, did you uh, did you ever get a chance to ride on the ride? Of course, because <laughs> I I did as a child. I, I yeah, went yes. to Vegas. Yeah, I was just gonna say. Um, I I rode on that ride while it was still in production, dude, a yeah. number of times. Yeah. Um, because we were doing the visual effects on the screen, and and by the way, if the visual effects on the screen don't match exactly what the platform is doing, you're going to throw up. So, yeah. so it was really, really critical to make everything match and, and to have the movement on the platform. And by the way, the platform doesn't tilt. It moves left and right, forward and backward and up and down, but it does not tilt mm -hmm. because that also uh, can induce uh, nausea. So yeah, we, we rode that thing many, many times during the course of production. And the, the one that I worked on that, that I was the supervi supervisor for was a screen that was VistaVision. VistaVision is a wide screen format, but Doug turned it on its side so mm. that it was a very tall screen. And all of the seats were balcony seats. You were sitting on top of the people below you. And so you looked up and you saw the top of the screen and you looked down and you saw the bottom of the screen. It was a really, really cool effect. It was done in VistaVision. And in 1993, it was done at 48 frames a second at 4K resolution, which was unheard of. In 1993, we had to render everything at 4K um, and, and at VistaVision format, which is really, uh, it was a crap ton of rendering back then at that time but uh yeah so so that's the piece that that's the piece that represents yeah, yeah. working with doug trumbull okay? you know it, it was um it, for, for people who maybe can't picture it or don't know what was going on it kind of at least from a total user perspective you know it's kind of like a star tours at disneyland if you if you've written that or these kind of like 4d type movies but much much more interactive in terms of like a uh, um almost like a roller coaster ride and I remember as a kid, sometimes they're good, sometimes they're less good, sometimes it's like okay, but like it felt like like a bad version of Star Tours, if you will. And the your Luxor project was awesome. I remember distinctly coming out thinking that's like a different level of of ride, of experience. And so so um, amazing work. Uh, it, it was really cool. Really cool. Well, I, I just want to do a shout out to uh, um, Jeff Kleiser of, and Diana Walzak. Kleiser Walzak was the company that I worked for. Um, and so uh, Jeff himself uh, and Diana supervised one of the theaters. I supervised uh, another one. And then um, Eileen O'Neill and uh, Derry Frost uh, um, worked on uh, the ride film that you're talking about, uh, along with a lot of other great animators and such. So yeah. I just like to call it, and, and she spells O'Neill with two L's. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a bunch of, um, I think there's a, there's a, there's a few of your, your colleagues or, um, I guess other, other people that you work with in the industry. So Frank Vitz, uh, ah. who features on your, your podcast, uh, it all it all looks so easy on the other side of the screen, I guess. So. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out to Frank. Um, yeah, you guys are going to really enjoy the episode that we did with Frank because um, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. But uh, Frank figured out how to make the Stargate effect of, of right, right, where they actually enter the kind of watery surface of the Stargate. Yeah. Yeah. And also the kerthudge effect where the water swooshes out and back. 
Yeah. Um, so Frank's the the genius who created that, and he will be appearing in uh, in one of the first episodes of CGI. Yeah, that's Fridays. awesome. So did the Luxor um, project lead to Stargate in any way? Um, yes. That, oh, uh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah? Because uh, Jeff Kleiser was yeah. able to show the people at Stargate that his team had already created Egyptian-themed CGI. Right, right. So absolutely, it, it led to that. that. was basically the uh, your demo reel was already created for you. Right, exactly. Well, yeah. you know, I'll, I'll get these things out of order a little bit because... No, let's do it. Let's go. You got the whole entire Stargate okay. production notebook, which I think is, well, that's, that's is crazy. It's going to be my fifth item. Yeah. But let me just go ahead and show it now let's because it's, yeah. all, it's coming up. Okay, so this was my my notebook for working on the entire Stargate production. So let me just share some things from this notebook. Um, first of all, there was what what I was tasked with doing was figuring out how to do these helmet morph shots. So I had to get a lot of reference uh, of the helmets and. Uh, Jaiman Hansu wearing the helmet, what uh, what he looked like, and you know, so so you can see we've got a lot of reference photos here, um, and and then Frank was tasked with creating the actual Stargate effect. So wow. these these are Frank's original notes about creating the Stargate effect. And, and um, he, he was figuring out, you know, where do we position cameras? What, what elements are going to be CGI? How are we going to incorporate live action to create reflections? And um, so I just, you know, wanted to share that. And also I wanted to show this, which, which was the <laughs> Stargate crew gear. Yeah, fashion. You, you guys you know, were in the fashion industry I, I have, as well? I, I bought the full-on jacket with every patch there was and somehow over the years that has disappeared right but this did not <laughs> you know you can see it is the stargate film crew official hat yeah well you get us those um blueprints for the jackets and the patches and we'll find a way to to recreate those we'll okay, get you another you one <laughs> you got it oh wow um, that's awesome yeah now, the other thing I did when I was working for Jeff Kleiser, um, he, he, he's, he's a master of bringing in projects. for. I, I don't know how he does it, but he was able to bring in the project of the Columbia Pictures Lady with the Torch logo. Yeah. And um, so I, I think we have a, yeah. So how lucky was I to be able to actually work on this iconic animation? I mean, most people don't even think of this as an animated logo. You know, most people think of this as something that exists in their mind. And, and, but what it actually was, was uh, um, I helped Jeff on figuring out, uh, yeah, there you go. You can see, you can see this was an ad in Millimeter Magazine, uh, I superimposed the back cover on the front cover for this image, um, and you can you can see they they <laughs> we've got a little zoom in on my name. Um, 
if you were to move that Zoom uh, a, a couple of units to the left, you'd see Jeff Kleiser's name and Diana Walzak. Diana sculpted the Columbia Pictures lady in, in physical clay. And then we painted lines on her and using a three-space digitizer, using a digitizer in the real world, we tapped on those intersection points and built that geometry just so that we could use that model to create the lighting effects on the Columbia Pictures lady. Um, so that, that model was used just to enhance the lighting on her. Um, and then uh, Jeff and Diana did like a hundred iterations of the clouds, the roiling clouds behind her. Um, but uh, well, I, I was going to say that, I mean, you've worked on some pretty iconic movies, but that, that might be the most famous thing like you've ever worked on. Like the thing that movie fans have seen hundreds of times, you know, and, and that no one ever thinks about somebody had to actually do that, you know, um, and the one cool story about that is that, um, well, there's many cool stories, but one of the cool stories about that is that Jeff Kleiser and um, Joel Hynek, Joel Hynek was, was the uh, art director for this project. And, um, and, and Joel is awesome. He also did the effects for Predator, the, uh, the kind of invisible transparency yeah, yeah, yeah. for Predator. Um, and, uh, and Joel is also a pilot. So Joel took me and Jeff Kleiser on a, on a plane flight uh, uh, in the hills of Western Massachusetts. And it was beautiful. It was a, a fall day and with the leaves changing in Massachusetts. It was just gorgeous. And we, we were flying over some clouds. And we looked down on this white surface of clouds. And what all three of us saw was the sun reflecting off those clouds was making a perfectly circular rainbow on the surface of the clouds. And it was actually not only a double rainbow, it was actually a triple rainbow. Wow. And, and the three of us were looking down at that and we all had the same thought. We've got to put that in our logo. And so at the end of the logo, you'll see the, the, yeah, the, let's see that again. Yeah. The, uh, rainbow. Yeah. Let's go to, you know, when you get to the end there, you'll see the, there they are. So, oh, cool. So that is because we took this little Cessna flight with Joel Hynek at the, uh, at the stick and, uh, and it occurred to all of us, oh, we got to put that in the logo. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. I mean, I, I love the way you're just taking inspiration, you know, in nature and, and trips that you're going on. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's super fascinating. So and, cool. and this is the way the real world actually works. You know, yeah. nothing gets on the screen by magic. There's always stories. There's always people. And, and that's kind of the focus of, of my CGI Fridays podcast is to let people know that, you know, these things don't happen by magic. And there are stories like this and there are actual people behind them. And by the way, we've got Jeff Kleiser coming up and we've got Frank Fitz coming up. Yeah. Um, so, so next. should we, should we, should we, I was going to intro it for you, Ed. Uh, okay. Why don't we go for the next one, which is. Um, now, yeah. what I have in this little black case here, I'm going to put in my hand. Can people now, guess this what it is? was from the set of The Mummy. Yeah. This, this is an actual scarab that was sent to me from the set of the mummy because 
I was responsible for creating the CGI scarabs. And yeah, we have CGI a clip of that as well. Yeah. Right. And and yeah. so there's the scene in there where where the guy's prying the, the scarab out of the wall. And this is one of those scarabs from that scene. But they sent it to me so that I would have reference for the um, iridescent effect that these scarabs had to have. Because when, there, there's the guy. That, so And there's uh, um, <laughs> what the scarab had to look like. Uh, and uh, this is a great shot. And Indira Guerrieri was the technical director on this shot. Um, Indira and I kind of tag team figuring out how the heck do we make it look like there's a scarab actually crawling under his skin because yeah. they did not sacrifice an actor and put a little thing under his skin and make it crawl around. Um, and so, um, we figured out techniques for doing all these things. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, there's the swarm of scarabs. There was a, a, a brand new CGI tool called particle systems. And so I used particle systems to instance an animated scarab that was just sitting in place and, and skittering. And I, I created uh, um, particle simulations and then instanced a skittering scarab to each frame. Oh, this is great, where, uh, where it crawls out of his neck and into his mouth and he chews it. Um, and this yeah, is also it. a nice scene that uh, Indira worked on where the scarab goes under Jonathan's uh, skin of his arm and we cut it and flick it out and this is the only shot in the movie where a scarab gets a hero close-up um where the animators actually had to create a performance the scarab lands on his back and flips over gets straight and then figures out he needs to go back and uh, attack those guys um and this was an interesting scarab we had to figure out how to do the uh the shadow on this guy and uh so Indira and uh, Eric Crumry, who was also an animator on these shots, and I all went into a bathroom at ILM with with some matches, and uh, and we were looking at in in uh, total darkness how matches created this shadow, this flickering shadow, and or uh, I'm sorry, yeah, a flickering shadow, yeah, and then yeah. the, it was well, weird because we walked out of the though. bathroom and there were people watching the three of us walk out of the bathroom together. You're you're like because um if you can help describe um I guess the different roles within CGI you're from what I understand a bit of a lighting master right and a lighting expert and uh, I'm imagine there's uh, to create a shot like that there's just so many different people that need to be in it you know what is your role versus some of the other people that you're working with to get that you know that and really that, the creepy crawler feeling right that that we all got when we watched it well okay so we. Like I said, there's always an art director who does the design work. So everybody works to the art director's design because they get the director's approval. Every step along the way, by the way, requires the director's approval. So you can't go from one step to the next until the director is bought off on the previous step. So the director buys off on the art direction, the imagery. That's sent to the modelers. The modelers build the geometry and, and it's just gray. And it turns around and, and you can look at all of the details in the model. Then the next step is um, that model is sent to two different places. It's sent to the animators where they start working. Like, for, for example, the scarab, you know, an animator would just make the legs move um, mm. and, and do a little skitter cycle in running in place. Um, or in the scene of the scarab that, that falls on its back, you know, there's an animator who actually creates performance. Um, 
it also goes to the texture painters. So they're the people that paint the textures that are on the outside surface. And, and that goes then to the lighting person or at, at the time, the, the process is a little different now because of a lot of changes in shader well, technology. This, this is what I was going to ask Ed, like today, I think people are just much more aware of what kind of roles are needed. You probably even learn about it in school. Whereas back then you were literally inventing this stuff. And I guess I, this is how I imagine it. There's a bunch of talented people. And it's like, who wants to take lighting? And then you just like raise your hand. I'll take lighting. Or is it actually, you know, Ed's got a thing for this lighting thing. Maybe he yeah, should no, be no, the no. one doing no. it. <laughs> the people in charge know what they need. And so they hire the people who have the skills that they need. So people are brought on as lighters. People are brought on as modelers. People are brought on as texture painters. And then then there are people that, that have a job function that people don't know about, such as rotoscope artists. So in, in Twister, for instance, if you see a, a lot of trees in the background, right? And when they shot that footage, there was bright blue sky and they have to replace that bright blue sky with this overcast, you know, foreboding look. Somebody has to create little edges around every bit of that foliage to cut out the bright blue and to put in the, the sky that you need in that shot. And so rotoscope artists get very little play in the press, but they're a huge part. Now, now we can do things in, in a volume where at Industrial Light and Magic, for instance, on The Mandalorian and on Obi-Wan Kenobi, um, they can actually project the background in a, a volume where the actors are performing. So the need for doing a lot of that uh, rotoscoping has gotten quite a bit less. Um, but still, you know, there at the, at the time, rotoscoping was a thing. Uh, compositing was a thing. People had to take all the different elements and add them together because the, the, the person doing the lighting is only lighting the scarabs or is only lighting the mummy, right? And then rendering that. And th but those have to be put into the shot. And if those scarabs don't have shadows under them, then they're not going to look right. So, you know, the compositor adds a lot to the shot as well. Um, so, and then there's the match movers, because mm -hmm. if I'm making a CGI dinosaur and Steven Spielberg shot this, this shot of, you know, looking up at the dinosaur, but there was none in there. Well, somebody's got to create a CGI camera that exactly matches in the CGI world what was in the physical world when Spielberg shot the dinosaur, the, 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 the actors without the dinosaurs. Sure, sure. So that the movement of the dinosaurs camera wise matches the movement of the plates. You know, if a, um, if a raptor has to jump up on a, on a table uh, and if it's a, it's a metallic table in a kitchen say, well, there's gotta be reflections of that dinosaur in that scene. So you need a match move that's, that's exact that matches exactly what the director shot so that not only can the dinosaur stand on it and his feet not seem to slide, but also you can render out CGI reflections that the compositor can put into the shot. So there are a ton of, yeah. of job well, functions you got your, nobody you got even your, knows about. You've got your friend Mark Siegel as well. How about Creature Dev and who assign attributes to the geometry or texture? So he's, he's also in the chat and live today as well. Oh, great. Well, shout out to Mark. I mean, you know, what, what was great 
about uh, since Mark is on the line. What was great about uh, seeing Obi-Wan Kenobi was seeing the return of the EOP. Yeah. Because one of my um, personal greatest uh, claims to fame is doing the lighting on the final shots of episode three. So at the time, it was the end of Star Wars. And, and so I got to light all the EOP shots at the, at the very, very end. Um, and Mark is the guy who created the EOP and modeled the EOP. And, and you'll see when we do his podcast, um, a photograph of him actually creating the EOP sculpture. So that, that was really cool about seeing Obi-Wan Kenobi yeah. when I saw it last well, time. Well, for, for all the members um, <laughs> you know, on today, that's going to be episode one. Um, and so... Yeah, literally uh, this week, um, you'll be able to hear Ed and and Mark talk about all those stories. All right, so Ed, we're going to not play any more clips in case uh, we get hit with another strike. So we should get back to the unboxing okay. of, of some physical objects. And we so have the next here. <laughs> I'm I'm trying to just cover the segue here. Um, we have here the crew gift from working on Galaxy Quest, which. Our producer, Kim Bromley, who is just the world's most wonderful human being. Um, and and uh, I'm still in touch with Kim, and I hope to do an episode with her eventually on what it was like to be a producer. Because one of the things I like to do in my podcast is talk about the different job functions. And, and Kim was the producer of uh, Galaxy Quest. But we created all these trading cards. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so you can see all the rock monster shots. Got little trading cards. There's the rock monster running down the hall. Hilmar Koch did this shot. Um, Hilmar is one of the most amazing TDs I've ever worked with. So you can see the rock monster got some good representation here. Um, and, the, and so it's an entire deck of trading cards. You know, And the yeah. only people that own these are the people that worked on the movie itself, on, on the visual effects of the movie itself. So that's... That's one of my um, one of my great things, and uh, let's see. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Um, well, I, and that was the five items: the uh, Luxor pyramid, <laughs> the millimeter um, Columbia Pictures logo, the Scarab, the Galaxy Quest, and the Stargate production notebook. So those were my five big items. And so now my question to you, Lawrence, is: Do we have time to show anything else? Yeah, I think so. I mean. Look, I mean, this is kind of a, a Star Wars Obi-Wan celebration week, I guess, uh, an event. And so uh, I believe you have some statuettes um, and crew gifts uh, for well, working I, I on. Well, I do. I do. Yeah. <laughs> I love how they're just like right there and you just turn around <laughs> and you just go so and get them. I, I guess I'll take his uh, his COVID mask off. Officially. Oh yeah, yeah, now. yeah, yeah. Just make okay. sure you're socially distanced. And, and he's socially know. distanced, and uh, and by the way, he's fully vaxxed and double boosted. Yeah, good. <laughs> okay. Okay. So this was uh, this was a crew gift from working on episode three, of course. And this was also a crew gift from working on episode three. We got our Chewy, and I've got my nice chewy life-size character back there behind me um and something else i wanted to um show is some production art oh cool and uh 
well, this is not so much production art, but what this is, is a storyboard frame from episode two, from the end battle sequence with the actual director's notes. Yeah. So what you can see is, um, is, is I think Ben Snow was uh, my sequence supervisor on this, and this may be his handwriting, but but it's all the notes on what to do on this particular shot, what needed doing. So that's how film works. You get you get notes, and sometimes they're handwritten, and and in that particular case, I got to keep one. Um, this is production artwork of the scarab from the mummy. Um, so Michael Jancy was the uh, designer of this. I've worked with some amazing art directors. I've worked with uh, Alex Laurent, um, uh, who designed the mummy itself, and uh, Alex Yeager, who designed uh, the rock monster for Galaxy Quest. So, but this is what production artwork actually looks like. Yeah, I, I reckon I would love those those notes <laughs> that you know hanging on my wall. I think I think a lot of the fans would. You know, just seeing how really the 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 magic was created. You know, that's that's scene. true. And uh, for those fans of Harry Potter, this was the production artwork for the sequence where the Bludger goes rogue in uh, Chamber of Secrets and starts chasing Harry and Draco through the uh, through the Quidditch pitch through the trench around the Quidditch pitch. And uh, I was very lucky to work with. <laughs> Somebody had a great name. His name is Kevin Sprout. And uh, Kevin and I worked on this sequence. That trench never existed in the real world. That is entirely synthetic. And mm -hmm. all of those shots of Harry and Draco flying around the trench, um, those are almost entirely synthetic. The only pixels that are real are Harry and Draco's face. Their bodies, wow. the broomsticks, their capes, everything else is totally CGI synthetic. Um, we, we, we shot a lot of green screen of them and decided all we really needed was their faces and yeah. we just handled the rest. So um, that was kind of cool. And then I, I discovered this the other day in my stuff. This is from 101 Dalmatians. Oh, right, yeah. This is the model of the dog going down the drain pipe and and what was cool is that when I was doing the look dev, the turntables to to um, to show what lighting would look like on these creatures and everything, I I put this dog on a spit and and I rotated him and it looked like he was over a flame being cooked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can see that. He's just missing an apple. He's just missing an apple in his mouth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, let's see awesome. some other things I wanted to share. So the Fangoria magazine, uh, you know, this is a shot that I did in Van Helsing of uh, Dracula opening his mouth real wide and, and uh, you know, you cannot kill me, Victor. I am already dead. Yeah. Um, and uh, this was the real actor up to about here. And then it totally CGI from here down. And what I had to do was join the live action to the CGI and mm. make it and make it totally seamless. So, but it was just so cool to see your picture on oh, the cover so cool. of freaking Fangoria magazine. Um, and an, another magazine cover, American Cinematographer, is, is one of the top magazines for the film profession. And uh, in this issue, 
they used a scene from one of my shots from the Luxor project with Doug Trumbull. Oh, cool. Um, so this is another time where I got my image on the cover of a magazine. Um, let's see. So Universal Studios. This was the invitation to the cast and crew screening of The Mummy Returns. So it's cool to have something from Universal Studios sitting on my, on my desk up there. So these were a crew gift from working on Star Wars Episode One. So we got all these patches. Oh, yeah. That was, uh, that was the first one. And of course, you know, I've noticed there's something missing from the Obi-Wan Kenobi series. At least I haven't seen it yet and no one's talking about it. And that is this guy. Yes. You know, so I don't know if Jar Jar is going to show up in Obi-Wan Kenobi or not. I've, I, I've only seen the first half of the first episode. So as soon as we're done here, I'm really excited to go sit down in front of my TV and watch the second half. But as far as I know, there's no Jar Jar. But, uh, you know, for people who, because I, I worked on a lot of Jar Jar shots in episode one, and for people who, you know, have an opinion about Jar Jar, I've got two things to say. One, George and Star Wars in, in general, because now even Disney's doing it, always put something in there for the kids to bring in a new generation of Star Wars fans. Jar Jar was that. If you were over 12 when you saw Phantom Menace, you hated Jar Jar. But if you were under 12 when you saw The Phantom Menace, Jar Jar got you interested in watching the Star Wars movies. So, and you don't need to defend Jar Jar Binks. I'm a fan no, of Jar Jar here, Binks. Here, you know what? what? I say a fan of Jar Jar Binks. Screw him. <laughs> yeah, my, yeah I, I, I agree. But here's what I say about Jar Jar. Jar Jar paid my mortgage for 12 years. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's that's all I got to say. Yeah. Um, what was cool about these patches was we also made the vehicles, you know, the pod race vehicle. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, the vehicles had uh, had their own patches. Oh, that's so cool. That's so cool. And and then, of course, there was Boss Nass. If anybody yeah. remembers Boss Nass, he was the head of the, the Gungans. And my interesting story about Boss Nass is that he had shoulder pads. And those shoulder pads had kind of an iridescent effect to them. And uh, a guy named Chris Townsend was working on those shots and created the iridescent shader for the shoulder pads. Chris went on to now become the visual effects supervisor of Guardians of the Galaxy. And he, he's, uh, he's one of the top visual effects supervisor at, at Marvel. Awesome guy. I'm hoping we can get him uh, on our podcast. Uh, he's really busy. I don't know if we'll be able to, but I'm hoping we can. But anyway, I asked Chris if I could borrow his shader that for Boss Nass's shoulder pads, and I turned that shader into the shader for the iridescence for the scarabs. So I stripped it out of everything that that was Boss Nass specific and turned it into the shader for the scarabs. Um, and then, of course, there was Watto. Yeah, and uh, the Watto shots were the first shots that were ever done in uh, Episode One. Um, Marjolaine Tremblay was uh, the animator on a lot of those, um, and of course, you know you got to have Padme Amidala. Yeah. But but the best patch, I say for last. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> 
And these patches um, for, were for all of the crew, or is it just for the visual effects team? Everyone? Well, when I say the crew, I'm talking about the crew at Industrial Light and Magic. So just the visual effects people on the crew. Yes. Oh, cool. Very um, cool. Let's see. So I'm gonna I'm gonna keep showing memorabilia until you tell me to stop. Okay. So, <laughs> well, this... let's do this. Why don't we do? Why don't we do this one as the last one? Yeah, and let's okay. talk about pirates for a little bit. And there's a bunch of questions basically, so I want to make sure we can Great. get to. Great. We want to make sure we get to that. Yeah. All right. So this was called a booty buck, and <laughs> everybody working on pirates two got five booty bucks, and they were good for one cup of coffee at our <laughs> our local coffee shop and and the local coffee shop was between c building and d building it was in the courtyard and it was constructed it was just this shabby thing that was that was built out of corrugated um metal uh just hammered together and and but the best thing about the coffee shop was the name of it so yeah. we would spend our booty bucks at java the hut <laughs> yeah Okay, and then I just want to show this. Um, so we got invited to a lot of different parties, and there was always a Halloween oh. party. So um, this this was the year. Uh, um, I'm, I'm spacing um, on the, the name of the movie, but uh, uh, the Blair, yeah, Blair Witch Project. Blair Witch Project. So yeah, this yeah, was yeah. the year that we uh, we did a parody of the Blair Witch Project for our. So basically, uh, I think um, what I'm learning about everything you're saying is. All of you are just a bunch of geeks, but you have some art, awesome artistic skills. And so whenever I think, you know, it'd be funny if we had a birthday card that looked like the Blair Witch Project, or maybe if we were able to do a, you know, anniversary uh, card that looked like, you know, Marvel or something, you would be able to actually knock it up and, and we just have to imagine it. <laughs> that, that, that's what you guys are doing. <laughs> well, you know, that's what we did as a group. And that's what made it so fun because you were there with the best people and and everybody there was really smart because you had to be really smart you have to be smart to do cgi you have to be able to figure things out you have to be good with numbers you know not everybody is but if you're going to be a technical director with the word technical in it you got to be technical um um and but it was just such a fun group of people i mean you know we we made yearbooks so yeah. there, there, there was always yearbooks um, of everybody that was on a crew, everybody that was working there at the time. Um, I want to share one more thing, one more thing while we're on that subject of, of how cool the people were at Industrial Light and Magic. So I had an office mate, Mossy Oka, and Mossy and I were part of this group that uh, that did improv. We loved doing improv. So on Mondays, we would have this IL improv, ILM prov thing. Yeah, yeah, um, I, I got you. And uh, and Mossy decided, you know, what he really wanted to do was act. And he went out to Hollywood and tried to make it as an actor. And by God, if anybody saw the show Heroes, yeah, Mossy became Hiro Nakamura. Whoa. And, and so what I've got here, I was in Toys R Us and I was able to buy an action figure of my freaking office mate. Yeah, that's like, that's so weird and awesome and cool. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so it, it was great. And, and the people is what made it great. And that's why 
my CGI Fridays podcast is, has come to be because I really feel like n- nobody understands that this magic that they see on the screen is the result of real people sitting around over conference tables figuring out how the hell are we going to do this? How are we going to pull this thing off? How are we going to create this shot in the storyboard that I've got in front of me? And, um, and I really want to introduce the world to the people that are behind that magic yeah. curtain, you know, you know, Wizard of Oz, pull back the curtain. And, and uh, that's, that's what I'm trying to do with this podcast. That's so cool. Uh, I can't wait for it. Um, I think a lot of the fans now uh, in the comments, they now know about it. And so they're really excited for it. All right. Question time. Uh, first question is from Gemma, uh, Gemma G. Uh, she asks, question for Ed. When watching a movie, can you watch as a regular viewer or do you find yourself studying the visual effects? Well, <laughs> the, the real answer to that is it depends on how well the visual effects were done. If, if the visual effects were done great, then, then I'm not thinking about them on first viewing. I always watch something a second time to watch the visual effects. Obviously, there's, there's the first time I'm watching as a viewer, the second time I'm watching as a CGI professional. But the first time I watch something, I try very hard to just get into the show. And if you get into the characters, if you get into what's going on, if you get into them personally, you know, um, you can you can really focus on that and not watch, um, you know, for the bad. It's it's just when CGI that comes on, and I notice a match move isn't done well, and the character's just sliding a little bit on the floor, you know. Um, there's there's some shots in uh, in. Maybe we I don't. Say. We don't need. We don't need to talk <laughs> yeah, about that. I, I, but I won't go there. I, but, I'm yeah. curious. Um, is it? Are, are you like hypersensitive to it more so than say yes. a normal viewer? Yeah. Yes, of course. Mm-hmm. Because I spent, you know, 30 years sitting in a screening room, watching a shot over and over and over, and looking in this corner, and looking in this corner, and looking down here, and looking over here, and looking here, and looking here, and watching it over and over. So. I notice stuff if some if there's something that only is on screen for one frame and it's bad I will see it. I yeah. can't not see it and I'll always go, "Hey, did you see that flicker? I bet there was right. a bad frame." And I'll I'll rewind it and sure enough, right I can stop on that frame and sure enough there's what I saw. Um so yes, my my eyes have been trained to see things in real time more than most people's eyes are. But but the real answer is, if I'm just watching something and it works, I, I'm not watching for the visual effects. I, I love to just get into the story the second time I'm watching it. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm assuming sometimes if, if it's so good, you don't know if it's real or not, right? Like we're, we're at that stage or do you actually, you can still tell? Here's the deal on that question. Hmm. If it couldn't possibly have been done practically, then it had to be CGI. And so when I'm looking at something, I'm not only looking, do I see it looking like CGI? I'm I'm looking, this is assuming I'm not on first viewing and just trying to watch the story. But if I'm on second or third viewing and, and looking at the visual effects, 
um, then, you know, it's, it's, it's all really a matter of um, how, how well was it done? Did it jump out at me? Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard as a professional to not uh, see the flaws yeah. So, and there are there are movies that I can't watch because the CGI just didn't work for me. Um, sure. But most sure. of the time, if something is, is is if you can't tell if it's CGI or not, which is true of a lot of stuff now, because you really can't. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you just have to think: Could they possibly have done that? How would they have done that for real? And if the answer is it would have been really, really, really difficult, most likely it was CGI. Right. Okay. Well, that's good. So for anyone who hopefully wants to get into the industry or thinks about that, you can still be a movie fan. It doesn't ruin you, uh, at least upon first viewing. So, so that's great. Um, GateGab has a question, you know, for, I guess, beginners. Um, is Blender the best place for an ultra beginner who's trying to teach yourself to start? Or maybe there's something else that you think? Uh, um, well, here's the... <laughs> Here's the easy answer on that, and it's three words. Blender is free. So, you know, whatever software you can get that you can use, learn it, obviously. Um, uh, if you don't have access to a subscription to Maya, um, then, of course, use Blender. If you're a student... And through your school, you have Maya. Well, I would recommend learning Maya. Um, you know, the other thing that is uh, obviously these days, the thing to know is the Unreal Engine. You know, secondarily Unity, but, uh, but mostly Unreal. Um, because the whole, the whole industry is shifting from a paradigm of rendering to a paradigm of generating things in real time as you watch. Um, and, and that's, you know, the idea behind the volume. They couldn't have made the volume at ILM before the Unreal Engine because things couldn't have been projected in real time, yeah. um, the way they are now. So if you do have access to Unreal, learn that. Um, if you have access to Maya, learn that. If you have access to Houdini, Houdini is the best package out there for doing effects work particles, fluid simulations, dynamics. Um, um, but if you don't have money, Blender's the thing. And, and quite honestly, there's some amazing stuff coming out from Blender artists. And what you get with Blender is you become part of a worldwide Blender community. So, so there's, there's the added bonus of being part of a big thing where there's a lot of people you can talk to and ask questions of and share your work with. And uh, so Blender's a, a great tool and it's free. Yeah. I mean, I can only imagine that's also, you know, part of the, I guess, innovation that's happened when, when you first started, there was no internet, there was no, you know, your community was whoever was local to you. And I think that's, what's really cool, right? As, as it doesn't have to always be the advanced technologies that get better and better. It's the, it's the consumer end or the lower end as well. And that brings in a new generation of, 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 you know, animators and creators, and then they can then start to form communities. And so that's, that's pretty cool. 
and I, I'd like to use this moment to uh, just give a shout out to SIGGRAPH, S-I-G-G-R-A-P-H. SIGGRAPH is the professional organization. It's the special interest group on graphics. Um, the Association for Computing Machinery has a number of special interest groups. SIGGRAPH is the one that talks about computer graphics. And, and for years and years and years, I've been going to the SIGGRAPH conference every year. And if you want to meet the computer graphics community, if you want to get a job in CGI, um, if you want to see the cutting, bleeding edge, you have to attend the SIGGRAPH conference. And now because of COVID, we're going, SIGGRAPH has been virtual the last two years. This year, it's going to be the first physical conference in three years. Um, um, but uh, for any of your viewers who don't know about SIGGRAPH, just go to SIGGRAPH.org. Um, SIGGRAPH has an organization called the Pioneers Group, and I am chair of the SIGGRAPH Pioneers Group, and that's a group of about six to 700 folks who were the, the people who were doing CGI in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s and and people who founded companies like nvidia we just did a uh, an event uh, last month and one of our speakers was the guy who wrote the initial uh, um gpu for that became nvidia the, the graphics card that everybody's got in their computers now um so SIGGRAPH is really a great place to find out what's going on with, with the world of computer graphics and to do it by meeting real people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and for those, um, because we have members all over the world, you know, SIGGRAPH has, I guess they call them chapters. Um, I know there's SIGGRAPH Asia. So if, look, if you can't make it to the U.S. in person, um, there are some pretty cool events kind of happening all over. Um, and, I, and I'm assuming it's all on the SIGGRAPH.org uh, website yes, um, yes. Yeah. and and i think you know what covid did for the world what people don't realize yet but but people will realize this what covid did it introduced the age of telepresence because before covid we didn't really think we could communicate by zoom and by by these kinds of but i conduct classes by zoom now and and it works just great and I'm sitting here in Denver, Colorado, in in the same office. I, you know, I, I I took my shower in that room. You know, right over there. Um, and and we're all working from our homes more and more. It's because of what COVID did to us. But um, you know, we really can. So one of the things that SIGGRAPH is figuring out is, well, how can we virtualize the event so that people who can't attend physically can still have a feeling for attending. And this is kind of, you know, and, and so the pioneers we've created, uh, there's a number of videos out there. If you Google me and SIGGRAPH pioneers, you'll, you'll find a lot of videos. I did an interview with Douglas Trumbull. Um, I did an interview with Donna Cox, who is the world's greatest pioneer at scientific visualization using CGI. Donna, um, she can't be here. She's on her way to Greece right now. So she's on an airplane right now. Um, but she created all, she and her team, of course, it's never one person. Um, but she and her team created uh, all the visuals of space that you see in every IMAX film that you go to. Right. Um, so, so there's an interview I did with her. 
Um, and there's lots, there's panels that we did. We did a panel on um, the analog years of animation that people can track down, which is really cool. Before digital computers, they were real animators doing CGI. Um, and we also did a panel on uh, um, the pioneering uh, graphics processors in which Curtis Prem, who was the founder of uh, NVIDIA, uh, was one of our guests. So, so there's a lot of content that is available for people now who can't actually yeah. make it to the shows themselves. Oh, awesome. All right, we've got two more questions kind of around the future of CGI. Um, first question is from Jason Singh. Uh, Ed, what do you think the next breakthrough in CGI will be? What are you the most excited about? Jason, my man, there have been so many breakthroughs. CGI, and, and this is one of the things that I'm going to be emphasizing in CGI Fridays. CGI always is having a breakthrough. It's this breakthrough, then it's this breakthrough, then it's this breakthrough, then it's this breakthrough. You know, so um, so many of the big issues that used to be problematic, you know, in the in the 1980s, we were wondering, will anybody ever be able to keep track of every hair or 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 every hair of fur on a character? And then in, in uh, Jumanji, we solved that problem. We figured out, well, how do you make a computer keep track of millions of, of hairs, individual hairs? And then, you know, there, there was a shot in Jumanji where they were on a motorcycle and the hair had to, you know, be flapping in the wind. So in the very same breath where we invented hair rendering technology, we also invented the idea of, uh, of giving it physical dynamics. Um, so, you know... Ocean rendering used to be a big thing until, you know, then we did perfect storm and now we've got 200 foot ocean waves that nobody's ever really seen and survived to, <laughs> yeah, photograph yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, then there was skin, you know, making skin look absolutely photorealistic. And, you know, in 2008, Benjamin Button came out and, and we totally believed the CGI uh, Benjamin Button was real. Uh, and that was, you know, what, yeah. 14 years ago? Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's incredible. See, I got to do be able to do math on the fly. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so the, the latest big thing has been what I've been mentioning a couple of times, the volume that Industrial Light and Magic uses to shoot The Mandalorian, uses to shoot Obi-Wan Kenobi, um, and has eliminated a lot of the issues with shooting with green screen you know, when you've got the volume and, and the character is actually surrounded by 360 degree um, CGI, not only does it solve things like uh, how to, you know, you no longer have to cut mats because the background is right behind them, but it also actually throws light on them in the way that that environment would throw light. And they get to perform being able to see where they are, you know, so yeah, it yeah. En enhances the performance. So, you know, so many of the of the problems that we used to have have been solved already. Um, the, the future is just a matter of speeding up the whole process. I mean, there's going to be little bits and pieces here. You know, we used to not be able to simulate the physics of, of buildings crumbling and stuff. But now 
you know, we got that. You yeah. know, we've, we've yeah, got yeah. Uh, um, uh, hard surface dynamics, you know, hard body dynamics. We've got all kinds of um, ways that we can simulate the physics of reality. Uh, another thing that's changed over the years is shaders. We now have physically based materials, whereas in the past we used to create materials and light it and kind of had to fake it in different lighting situations. Maybe in a dark scene, we'd make our material darker. And, you know, that's just a simple example. But um, um, now we've got materials that are based on physics. So if we apply materials correctly and create those materials correctly using tools like the Substance suite of tools from Adobe, um, we're, we're going to have things that look so lifelike with scratches and nicks and dings and wear and tear. Um, and it's going to work no matter what lighting scenario we put it in. We had to used to physically put lights in the scene and that we still do that to an extent. But now um, Paul DeBevick created, uh, you know, at, at the turn of the century in 1997, 98, 99, um, a way to do lighting based on imagery that was shot at the scene. And, and that technology has really, um, you so, know, exploded. So who knows yeah. what next Ed, what thing is? I think what it's just kind of through, throughput. What does that mean really for, I guess, the viewer and on screen? So you're saying you can start seeing the scratches and the details. Is it really about almost like ultra, you know, gigapixel, giga, you know, zooming in? Is that is that what you're kind of talking about of how it actually will affect the, the user's experience? Well, you know, it affects the user's experience. I, I, think, I think the things that are going to happen in the future mm -hmm. have less to do with the new things that you can do with CGI rendering and more to do with interactive ability of, of the imagery to see what's going on with the viewers. I mean, you know, when you put on the Oculus or the Vive or the, you know, what, what, whatever. Yeah, yeah, um, a VR headset. VR helmet. Now you've got a totally different experience that that's, you know, you move your head around and you see 360 degrees, right? And you look up. So you're now a part of that experience. Well, what happens in the future in a movie theater? I mean, there's, there's going to be AR, augmented reality, where you have some kind of glasses and... And it takes the real world perspective and superimposes CGI into it. So I think the next big advancements are not so much in what can be done with CGI, but will be more to do with what can be done with interactive audience yeah. participation. Yeah, these like ultra immersive experiences. Yeah, yeah. Um, last question, uh, half of it you've already kind of answered. So we'll put the whole thing on screen. It's from Jenny Steven, uh, who's on our team um, as well. And But, okay. you know, it's going to be the second part of, of uh, this question that I'm really curious about. Um, the question, the whole question is, you're obviously uh, constantly curious and explore new adventures. And, and you've already talked about this right now. Right now, what are you excited about what's happening in CGI and VFX? And you've talked about that. So my the, the real part of it, which is fun, um, what do you love to binge watch right now? What are like the kind of three shows or three movies that you are either looking forward to watching or or have just recently watched? So so we last night, 
last night I saw the final episode of Moon Knight. Okay. Um, yeah. So so I've been I've been totally caught up in Moon Knight for the last two or three night or, or three for the last week, I guess. Um, um, you know, Disney Plus. How can, how can you beat? watching Disney plus um, I'm, I'm not doing a promo for them by any means, but uh, um, you know, Obi-Wan is, is of course the next big thing. Uh, but all of the, the recent big things um, I just watched the, the first season, first half season finale of better call Saul. I've been like really big into breaking bad and better call Saul and, you know, all during the pandemic, my girlfriend and I are going like, when is Better Call Saul coming back? You know, yeah. um, and uh, so I, I won't spoil anything uh, about the final episode. That was just a few days ago. No, that's cool. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, Mandalorian was fantastic. You know, uh, Loki, WandaVision going back a, a year or so ago. Um, um you know, there's, there's, it's really cool to be like a, just a regular old viewer now, you know, yeah, yeah. I, I'm not doing this stuff. So I don't know about the things that are coming up. I, I just found out uh, earlier today um, about ABBA. Who knew? Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Who yeah. knew that ABBA has spent the last couple of years at Industrial Light and Magic with 140 animators recreating themselves as, you know, yeah. in, in their 20s and 30s, I guess, uh, um, and doing a, a, a new live performance piece um, <laughs> with, with CGI provided by Industrial Light and Magic. Who knew? I didn't know that until this morning. So you know, tr just, just keeping up with it. It's, it's fun to be a viewer now yeah. to be kind of removed from the scene and just be finding these things out as regular old viewers find them out. The funny, funny story. Um, Tommy, uh, one of the producers and editors of Stargate AI, um, his friend, uh, works in the various different, um, VFX, uh, uh studios out here. And he had this really big project that he wasn't allowed to talk about. And so we were always like, say, oh, you must be working on Avatar 2 or you must be doing that. And in the end, it was ABBA. <laughs> that's what it's, he's been that's working what, on. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah, they were under some pretty strict NDAs. And, <laughs> you know, I still have friends at Industrial Light and Magic. And, and the friends that I still have that are there have all risen to major supervisor positions. Yeah. Um, but I know not to ask them. No, no, no. Because no. they can't yeah. tell me. Yeah. When, you know, I, I couldn't tell people when I was working there, you know, when I would go to SIGGRAPH and I knew about, you know, what was coming, I couldn't talk about it. So, uh, you know, I know enough professionally that when I talk to my friends who are still there, I don't ask. And also in my podcast, I don't ask about anything that is... Um, um, yeah, it could be sensitive or or what they're yeah yeah yeah, yeah of course so of course that that's why I kind of focus in my podcast on the early formative years because at that time you know now people are a little jaded about CGI yeah it's just CGI right but when the mummy came out oh my god did you see those scarabs oh you know? uh, yeah it was crazy there yeah. was a time yeah. when CGI was really a, a sweet spot of like the coolness factor. And, and so 
that's where I'm kind of focusing my podcast on the development. I'm not so much talking about what's current right now because studios are kind of sensitive about letting people talk about that. And I don't yeah, want yeah, to for sure. put anybody in the position of, I don't know if I can talk about that or not. Perfect. Well, Ed, thank you so much. You've given, uh, given us uh, an hour and a half of your time. Um, for everyone else also, thank you so much for joining us live. And if you're listening to this um, you know, afterwards as part of the podcast or as part of the you know, on-demand video, um, welcome. Thank you. Send in your questions because we could always do mailbags with Ed anyway, right? On future CGI Friday um, episodes for sure. Uh, if you're new to The Companion, we have over 500 feature-length long reads. That's like reading five to 10 years worth of magazine cover stories. Um, if you have, if you love interviews and events like this one, we have several other podcasts, not just Ed CGI Fridays coming out uh, and other events just like this. Um, you know, last week, last weekend, we did something called Stargate AI version 2.0, where we brought um, some of the cast back from Stargate. Uh, Brad Wright, the creator of Stargate, you know, helmed that project. I think, Ed, you were in the comments. What did you think of Stargate AI? What what was that like for you? <laughs> right, the hat. <laughs> um, it was awesome. And, and you know, I, I, I not only attended this one, but I attended the one a few months ago. Um, and when we saw the first AI version of, of a Stargate script, it was just so funny because it was just so silly, right? The, the, yeah. the computer had created some stuff that was just really random words random and laughable yeah. and but this one you could really see a quantum leap if i may yeah 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 um, for sure <laughs> um because quantum leaps another show we covered um <laughs> but uh yeah i mean it was really a, a quantum leap in what the computer could do and now it, it's starting to actually sound like real dialogue between cast members um and the question that I posed um, was, when is the AI going to realize that it's being funny? You know, I, I don't know if the AI knows any of, you know, that any of these things are going to cause people to laugh. And, and so I'm really curious to see where the AI goes with, with creating humor intentionally rather than unintentionally. But uh, but the the jump between last time and this time was huge. So I'm expecting if we do a version 3.0, we may get something that actually sounds like a script to Stargate. It, it will. I mean, I think where it kind of goes and, and the analogy that I oftentimes use is very much like the tools that you use, which is you, you do need a human to write things that are funny. But imagine if you were a writer or you're a comedian and just like Photoshop, right? Helping, you know, artists or designers, just like, uh, you know, Myra helping folks like you to actually create something like just a little bit funnier, just a little bit more accurate. I think that, I think that's kind of where it's heading. So um, we have some ideas for Stargate AI version 3.0. Uh, that was the reason why I was out there in, in, in Mountain View uh, to chat to Lawrence. And uh, that, I think that's gonna be really cool. Um, we have actually a couple of announcements. So uh, last weekend, because um, you know Chris Judge obviously wasn't a part of the SG-1 cast, but he's very important. He will be coming to the Companion um, this fall. Um, but also, 
uh, since we're actually almost into summertime, we thought we should think about maybe another event, uh, maybe involving the ocean. So we have a, a little bit of an announcement for our next project coming up. So Ed, you might not have to wait that long to see where Stargate AI continues to improve and go. Um, and I know we have a lot of Stargate events, um, you know, and that's not all we do. And so we're going to be expanding our slate a little bit um, to really make it the summer of sci-fi. So we've got another announcement. Um, so I just have one question, I guess, for all of you, if you believe. I was not expecting that. <laughs> so just like the way we've been covering Stargate, and you'll see some of the articles recently, you might be like, hmm, interesting. Why are they writing so many X-Files articles? Well, there you go. That is coming soon. It's going to be very exciting. I'm not going to announce who's involved or what's involved or what's going on. But if, if you know, Stargate is anything to, to kind of indicate what might happen, uh, that's what we're kind of doing there. Um, so yeah, all of our content, podcasts, and events available on the website, the app. Uh, we have a newsletter. I know some people haven't been on the newsletter. Join it. We're going to be sending more content through that. And then if you want to continue the conversation, we've got a Discord as well. Um, and yeah, check out CGI Fridays. It's going to be this coming Friday. And you'll hear more from Ed um, and the rest of his amazing pioneers that basically helped shape the industry. So Ed, thank you so much. Uh, thank, thank you so much, Lawrence. And thank you for to everybody at The Companion and for what you guys are doing. You're trying to make a, a Comic-Con that people can attend from their desk, which is just That's what we're awesome. trying to do. That's what we're trying. Yeah, yeah. And, and really, the only way it happens is because people like you, people, awesome people like you who are so knowledgeable, uh, come on and, and share your experiences. So, well, thank thanks so for much. giving me this opportunity, Lawrence. And, and I... I look forward to everybody um, enjoying the CGI Friday podcast with all these amazing artists.